Science. Welcome to Probably Science. I'm Matt Kirshen. There is Andy Wood. Yes, I am. Uh, how are you doing, Andy? I'm good. I'm just enjoying a delicious Lagunita Pilsner. Uh, the official is that isn't that the official beer of the Probably Science podcast? Are you going to take your Lagunitas today? I, have, I am. I have I'm going to take it out of my. Okay. Uh, yeah, I. I left a large amount of beers at Andy's, um, but I'm going to take them around. Hey, we've got a guest. Yes, it's we an do. international guest. Mm-hmm. Yes. Coming all the way from first Australia and then London. First London, then Australia. And then, oh, you were in London originally? Yes. Well, no. First Australia, then London, then, then, I mean, then I'm ta- LA. I'm talking about the last three origin? weeks. The last three weeks. The last three weeks. So, and then in uh, LA, just for this one recording now. Just for just for the day, I've landed, and then I'm going away immediately. Yeah, before. we just we just like we flew her in at great expense, but I think it's going to be worth it. That's oh. the voice of Alice Fraser. Our, our guest budget for the entire year. <laughs> that is shot on Alice. Worth All it. of your kind donations yep. have entirely gone to flying Alice from London. Even though you were going to be in LA a bit later anyway, but we're like, no, it has to happen today. We Just need Alice this week. What Chartered you want plane. is a very rambling and jet-lagged person who did not sleep at all on the plane. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There was a lady next to me who was very old and very nice and wanted to chat. And then... Uh, I was on the window seat and I didn't want to wake her up because she looked so sweet sleeping in a little ball and I needed to do a wee so, for about 12 hours. <laughs> so I couldn't sleep. I was just like oh my God, desperately watching action movies and squeezing my thighs. You are such a kind-hearted <laughs> person. <laughs> I would have just... Fuck that little old lady. Like, yeah. she can... She, little old ladies fall back asleep all the time. She would have fallen asleep <laughs> again like that in seconds. It wasn't so much that I didn't want her... I I didn't... I, I worried that she might talk to me more if I woke her up. Oh, so there is a self-preservation aspect. All right, that's this. fair yeah. enough. Yeah. Well, that there is... Um, yeah, you, your um, level of the protein called PER... I'm trying to find the exact specifics of it. Basically, the Nobel Prize for Medicine was awarded this week. To the people who figure out how to hold your pee in for a long time? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Like, uh, yeah, I, th- I think it was like the first person who discovered that if you break the seal, right. it's all gone. Someone must have done an actual study of whether breaking the seal is real, right? I Yeah, I did. I, was there a special episode of Mythbusters where they got drunk in a I bar? Are you aware of this concept even? I, yes, I am aware. Okay. I, I, despite not being a drinker, I am aware of the breaking the seal concept, which is just, once you start weeing, you keep weeing. Yeah, which I think... I think that's I'm, just how liquid happens, right? But yeah, it's, it's more I, like suddenly the urge, like before the first time you go, the urge does slowly build, but somehow once you go, the urge comes faster and more intensely than that one you were holding for a long time. Here's what I think is actually behind it. And again, if there has been any science done on breaking the seal, I would, I would, please listeners, we'll, we'll talk about this in a second, but you came through listeners in grand style uh, in answer to our duck penis questions oh, yeah. of last week, and how? Oh my! Did you did you deliver? Good <laughs> listeners of probably science, as I knew you would. Yep. Um, but um, here's what I here's what I believe happens: you go to a bar, mm-hmm. or a club, or a pub, lost, or a drinking lost. venue of your choice, or a party, or whatever, or a park, who knows, or a cabin by yourself, and you start drinking mm-hmm. because you're tying one on, and you have say three or four pints over the course or even more over the course of several hours yeah 
That's a lot of liquid. It's a lot of liquid. Firstly, that's a lot of liquid to be in your body anyway. And you weren't drinking that amount of liquid before you showed up. Exactly. But the first pint is probably going to take a good hour, hour and a half or so to work its way through your system to go into your stomach, be absorbed into your bloodstream, then be then be um, filtered out by through the kidneys and eventually end up in, filling the bladder. Mm-hmm. And that's going to take... Your, your liver a poke in, that's gonna, in the side yeah, with the Yeah, the elbow. liver's doing its thing at the same time, but this is all like kidney filling up the bladder. So by that point, your bladder has got, let's say, one pint's worth of beer, but it's already done. But by the time it's getting to the point where there's enough pressure for you to really need to pee, you've probably drunk... Like a f- you've already redrunk another one and a half to two pints in that time. Like you've got a backlog, it's, is it's what I'm back, saying. Yeah, there's, a, there's a pipeline thing going on now, and yeah, yeah breaking before- the seal is just is really a thing of like, hey, when you're not in the middle of a drinking session, you need to pee every couple of hours or so. But in the space of the last th- three or four hours, you've just drunk four pints of liquid. And also four pints of liquid, which is specifically a diuretic as well. But the first one takes about an hour and a half for it to all kick in. But then you've just got this backlog of all this other stuff that's just going to keep coming. Which like so it has nothing to do with... Yeah, yeah, it has nothing to do with breaking the seal and everything to do with... Th- yeah, this is like they've just... This is just like they've just opened... They've, they've just opened the department store on the Black Friday sales, right? Uh. And this is the, I think this is see, I think this is the opposite. Here's, you're so gonna, they, you're going to disprove your own argument in a second, I think. But no, go. here's what I think. Like they've just opened the they've just opened the front the front doors for the Black Friday Day sales, but it's going to take a little while for everyone to go running around that department store and find the things that they want to buy. So if you're at the um, if you're at the till, you're you at the checkout. The you're the checkout person. Then you're I've, you're the checkout person. And you're like, well, you know, you know what it's like. The second the first pe- customer arrives. God, then it then you can't stop them, yeah, and you're like, no, it's got nothing to do with the first customer arriving. It just takes like 20 minutes for the first person to but, go through the shopping experience, get their stuff, and then suddenly there's a shitload of people backed up, ready to go. Okay, so where is the final sphincter holding in the urine in your analogy? I thought it was the front door. You're saying it's at the checkout. No, they, I'm talking about. Then what's the analogy for the front door? That's your mouth when you're drinking. Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought you were going to talk about how it, the, the first initial rush yeah. is I, I probably say, the strongest rush at the front door, which no, is the argument for why the first pee is the most intense. Oh, no, 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 no. I know that. I'm talking about the, fr- the front door is, a f- is essentially the your door mouth. of the bar or the mouth or whatever. <laughs> it's the beginning of the party. Okay. The front door is the beginning of the party, but this is like, let's say you're a toilet scientist like front, and you're the there with your clipboard and you're asking body? people about it. The front door is not a part of your body, but the checkout counter is part of the body. The front door is your mouth. Yeah, that's what I, they have to both be part of the same. Thing. Okay, Can fine. You... <laughs> the front door and the checkout are both parts of your body. Okay, okay. They're both they're the <laughs> mouth and the urethra, respectively. And, and people are trying to force beer into your mouth, keeping your lips pursed because it's not midnight yet. And then at midnight, you open your lips. And everybody gets to dump every drink in your mouth well, very Unless quickly. you consider okay, like consumerism yeah. a disease equivalent to alcoholism okay, as you desperately trying to hold back That's the urge. Dawn of the Dead was about, and then right? in rushes the customers okay, yeah. and buy your sanity. Conspicuous Leave you a wreck yes. that needs to be mopped up by immigrants at the end of the day. <laughs> Wait, what? Are the immigrants in your body, or are those real immigrants again? Um, they're probably free radicals or okay. something. <laughs> I didn't think it through that much. Yeah. But Matt, the only thing I think is is counter to your argument. No, wait, is... the immigrants are immigrants. Okay, they're actual immigrants. Yeah. Could, okay, that makes sense. Cool. Um, I... But don't you think that there's something to be said for that first P should be the most intense and the most urgent feeling because there might be the most pressure behind it? You've held it for the longest time. Yeah, well, that's okay. That's also true. 
I would think after that, the, the urge will come more quickly, but it shouldn't be as intense. But I feel like when I've experienced the seal breaking thing, the thing that surprises you is you held it for a long time and it wasn't like it really even hurt up to the end. But then as soon as you did, when it comes back, it comes back not only quickly, but like the urge is more intense than after. That's what I feel like is the weird, like non-intuitive thing about breaking the seal. But I mean, I'm sure someone's actually studied this stuff and there might be some other, like maybe some other mechanism that, that, um, like maybe there are like other chambers between the bladder and when it actually leaves. And once, once those things have fluid in them, it like increases the urge, the sensation that you have to or something. I don't know. I don't know. There could be some other thing at play though. I don't know. I just start taking notes. Start (laughs) taking notes. Listeners, you know what to do. Hey, Alice, we we were about to accidentally jump into stories before we asked the question we always ask all our guests. Oh, yes, ask away. Which is, at the beginning of the show, what, if anything, is your background in science? Uh, I am an enthusiastic amateur, mainly of uh, neuroscience stuff, Uh um, because my mum had MS, so uh, it was kind of a practical hands-on experience, plus an interest in the development of uh, cures and understanding of the disease. Right. Um, uh, And... uh, other than that, I I like I like science fiction a lot, and it's always better if you know some of the real science behind it. I I really liked science in school. I I did chemistry and all of that stuff and enjoyed it. Oh, nice. awesome. awesome! I was not I was not uh, maths inclined. Well, that's fair enough. Yeah. Uh, is multiple is MS? That's not the Jerry Lewis. It's multiple sclerosis. It's a that's not, that wasn't degenerative Jerry's. neurological condition where your body's immune system attacks the sheathing around your nerves called the myelin sheath. So you lose electricity. You get all sorts of uh, oh. incredibly nasty, progressive bits of you just sort of get wiped out. Um, you know, neurologically. Neurologically yeah. speaking, so it can take any any track that it wants. So some people sort of go blind. That right away or you get numbness and tingling basically any nerve any any nerves in your body could suddenly be yeah well it's all yeah and and so often it'll it'll happen slowly sometimes your brain recovers a little bit relapsing remitting is that is that one some people have a very rapid decline and die very quickly um my mum lasted about 33 years which is a good run but it was pretty nasty at various points i'm sure are there are there recent advances at all like what is the unfortunately um not unfortunately very fortunately yes but a lot of them are for early stage diagnoses okay so they understand it better when my mum was diagnosed there were a lot of people who didn't even think it was a real disease that kind of thing she was on uh, anti what what are they called homeopathics i'm jet lagged homeopathic medication she was prescribed to homeopathic medication which by is a doctor not medication by, by at all yeah. that's just homeopathy doctor by yeah. like a regular doctor no by a regular doctor they were like you but, might want to try homeopathy there's not much we you can might do. want to try just pretend magic sort of sugar pills basically the only the only sort of actual effect that the, the homeopathy treatment thing that they suggested was was that you weren't meant to drink coffee while you had it so she just didn't drink coffee for a while so they might as well just said ease off the coffee right. and it would have had exactly the same effect yeah exactly that uh so you know that's that's my background in science i've been a, i've been in almost every department of the hospital other than uh, you know the gynecological and neonatal wards with mum as a kind of a tourist so right God. And mostly in which country? Australia, yeah. which I'm, has good hospitals ask, and good medical care. Uh, right. We we do well. Even if sometimes they do suggest completely nonsense. I mean, this was whatever this was, many yeah, years ago. At this several point. decades back. Yeah. 
but yeah, they didn't really understand it. Now they really understand it very well to answer your original question, and it's 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 really good. The treatments that you can get mostly, if they yeah. get it early, they can slow it down to an incredible degree, which is good. Oh, that's great. And presumably also because that medicine's only going to keep advancing, the more they can slow it down now, the more time they're buying to slow it down further in the future with better treatments. Yeah, exactly that. Like when, again, with my mum, they prescribed her having some kids because uh, <laughs> apparently that also slowed it down. So I was... Well, that actually was a thing they thought, oh, yeah, like yeah, the so, hormones. Yeah, that was accurate, that was true. I don't know if, if we helped or hindered, but my, my twin brother and I were somewhat medicinal. I've heard of that before, though. I had a friend who was married to a woman who had a super high risk of breast cancer, hereditarily, if that's a word. And uh, I think if you have children, maybe it actually uh-huh. reduces the risk somehow. Is that true? I, I could, in some cases, well, also there's a dual there's a dual argument for having children early with a disease vector like that because you don't know how long you'll last or how long you'll have the capacity to look after them. I thought there was actually some ameliorative effect of having kids. Though, I think so, well, also, I think sometimes, I think endometriosis as well can sometimes if you have a kid because it's it's good for it yeah because I, it's and this is again I, I listeners write in if i'm talking utter shit but uh but it's autoimmune uh it's an autoimmune thing and it affects the lining of the womb mm-hmm. and when you have a kid it basically is effectively resetting everything that's in there because the whole everything gets changed over oh okay yeah, it's, uh, and and also that's another one where in endometriosis, if you have it for long enough, makes you infertile. Mm-hmm. Sorry, this is very uh, not happy and exciting chat. You know, I mean, <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's a downer of a week. Uh, but like, have, have kids to help you works on two levels is yeah, my yeah. point. But um, don't have kids because who wants to bring kids into this world right now <laughs> that we're in? Um, a world without Tom Petty and... Uh, with the uh, horrible, anyway, who yeah. you saw ten days ago and I didn't, and now I'm, I'm very glad I went to that show. Yeah, yeah. God damn it! I mean, not to make that. I, it's also weird that like it's like if, what if Bob Dylan dies on the next nine eleven? You know, how are we going to like? We shouldn't be talking about one person when there's all these other horrible, yeah, de- violent deaths. But um, he was a legend, and also condolences to everyone involved in Vegas. That's insane and horrible and. Uh, hey, happy time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, hey, yeah. weren't we talking about duck penises? We were talking about duck. Should oh, we just go boy. straight in there with the duck penises? <laughs> duck penises. Why not? No, yeah, yeah. duck People penises need... don't go straight in there. That's... <laughs> you around. are absolutely right, Alice. <laughs> uh, yeah, we got at least three emails. Um, we got more than which... three. We got several tweets as well. Oh, okay. We got quite a few videos explaining this. One great video that we, you guys, if you are, if you have any curiosity about how these duck penises work, you have to look in our show notes. Click on the video link because uh, Noah Bressman, who is a PhD student at Wake Forest in biology, he sent us the most perfect, it's, it defies description really, but the video just shows how these things uh, corkscrew out explosively and and can fit basically the thing that I thought would be a problem, which is you can't, you can't push a corkscrew straight into a corkscrew shaped hole. It would have to turn, but these things don't start as corkscrews. They just instantly like... Whoop, curl out yep. and a few other people Remy Waltz sent in a video Joey Harbour I think uh, yeah loads of people apologies if you don't get a name check because lots of people sent us information and videos of of this happening and yeah they basically good on you duck scientists yeah. who have coaxed a duck to <laughs> somehow get erect into a spiral test tube 
that that's a good point. I didn't think about how they <laughs> turned on the duck when they had that corkscrew text, test tube pressed up against it. So, uh, but it worked. Hang on, I'm going to find this video for you, and I'm going to show you. And the video also shows uh, an extruded. Uh, that's the wrong word, but like extruded. Somehow, what does extruded mean? A duck vagina, right? and how it has oh. the different like dead end passageways, like they were talking about. So sometimes the male will just like shoot off into a, a part of the vagina that goes nowhere. It's so ineffective in, in fertilization. Like yeah, de- decoy uh, s- some of the information. Yeah, they have sort of decoy. So there, the, and the, also the duck, the female duck is able to um, relax and contract the muscles around there to st- help prevent or, in, or allow desired or undesired ducks to enter. Oh, wow. So, sh- so it's like a... Oh. Go to the two-minute mark there. It's like an arms race, basically. It's, that's exactly. exactly what it is. It's like how women invented feminism and then men invented pretending to be a feminist to get into women's pants. <laughs> you knew about that? <laughs> I thought that was a that's, secret. Yeah, I really can't believe uh, <laughs> you, we've been outed as a gender. God damn it. And then um, women invented women's rights and men's, men invented men's rights activism. All of that stuff. Where is this video? Is this the right yeah, one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like, start it at two minutes. You might even okay, want to so play the audio. We could, I don't think, I think we're allowed to play someone else's like, 30 seconds. Oh, hang on. Here it is. I mean, uh, arguably, this is a satire. Oh, God. What? You, it, <laughs> I mean, it's a, a penis going into a test tube. The a specific a spiral, yeah. And a curly penis. Mm-hmm. And then just a very long still shot of a, what I assume a is a, a, a flaccid a version. Duck penis, yeah. Just a free-floating duck penis. Also, while we're talking about barbs, listener uh, Kate, who tweets at blithery poop, uh, said, cat sex clarification, it's not rape, cat's dicks are teeny tiny, they can't mate until the female basically squats back, and the barbs stimulate ovulation in the female and don't get stuck in her. Again, tiny dicks. Tiny, tiny. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Kate. That, I wonder if this that is a fits pro in with my theory listener. about cats. <laughs> that people think cats are shameless, but I think cats feel only shame and they behave in that <laughs> aloof way because they're just constantly confronted by their own existential despair. <laughs> the males, the males at least. Yeah, that's, you, you think they're proud and aloof, but often as with real people, you find out that they're really just desperately unhappy in themselves. Because they're tiny dicks. Maybe. What about the female cats? I mean, they might also feel unsatisfied. <laughs> okay, they're either shamed, ashamed or unsatisfied. Yeah. So either way, like misery all around the feline kingdom. I mean, my theory exists in the absence of, of any genital uh, security or insecurity. Maybe okay. for cats, tiny dicks are the go-to. Like, like in Greek art, right. it's considered more civilized David, right, 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 and right. beautiful. Rather than having a terrible, you know, beastly. Maybe it's because they, they, they used to do all their all their sporting <laughs> events naked, so it would just be cumbersome to have this huge, right? Yeah, well, I, mean, I think it was mainly a factor of of marble engineering. <laughs> <laughs> what if it really was just that? Like, they convinced everyone that was the thing, just because it's hard to carve the giant. <laughs> the guy- <laughs> or clothes, for that matter. They right. got like the, yeah. the the sculptors like I can't. Can we just make them be naked? Because I'm really not good at tunics. I'm a bad tunic. Yeah. <laughs> I can't, it's really hard to get the fabric. i got to say, it's probably one of the easier things to carve. I tell you yeah, what, I tunic. can carve a dick like nobody's business, but I cannot get a singlet. <laughs> I, can't. I, don't know. I feel like abs would be trickier than one giant sheet of fabric, but I don't know. You'd think, but that's why you're not the sculptor in this. Yeah, wait, also, why do they want abs? Why wouldn't they advocate for beer bellies? That's got to be easier to sculpt than to have to go in and out and in and out for all the, like... You'd be surprised how nuanced a good beer belly can be. Really? Okay. <laughs> 
There's more to it than I thought. It's, it's like, you know, all happy families are happy in the same way. All six packs are six packs in the same way. Every sad Every tummy is, is yeah. sad in a unique Russian novelistic kind of scope. <laughs> is that from some classic Russian novel, that saying? Uh, I think it's a, oh gosh, um, like Tolstoy or Dostoevsky said all happy families, or maybe Chekhov, one of them, miserable uh, Russian novelists. All happy mm-hmm. families are like every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. I love that. That's a paraphrase, but no, it right. is a, it's a good it's a good one. I like it. Hey, uh, so there have been there have been two Nobel prizes announced in this oh. in this run. Mm. Uh, should we should we do medicine first because we've already touched on it? Sure, sure. The medicine one was about uh, the body clock. Mm. Knowledge of what the three scientists who unraveled how our bodies tell time. I mean, ha- that's relevant to me right now. Exactly have won the 2017 Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine. The body clock, or circadian rhythm, is the reason we want to sleep at night, but it also drives huge changes in behavior and body function. The U.S. scientists Jeffrey Hall, Michael Roshbach, and Michael Young will share the prize. Uh, but- wait, Flavor Flav doesn't get any? <laughs> no, he. but he does, uh, I think he really did help draw attention to the issue the I mean, yeah. this is super relevant to me right now or tomorrow which is when my body thinks it is now mm-hmm. yeah it's uh it will uh i find though that you come you come from london right no i came from sydney so i was in london three weeks ago then i was in sydney for two weeks oh and oh that's the really hard way you've done yeah. you've gone around in the worst direction yes absolutely i have I ju- and i just sort of started to get my teeth into sydney time yep and uh now is that eight hours um earlier than us Yes, in more. that I I took a fourteen hour flight at midday from Sydney mm-hmm. and landed here at seven a.m. on the same day. Ah, so I travel because you cross a, you go back across the international dateline. Yeah, which it's, it's a it's an odd and but if you disregard the dateline part of it, it's really it's six hours behind us, or I mean, actually eighteen hours ahead of us. But like, yeah, which is effectively six hours behind. When you're trying to figure right. out when to call someone on Skype, you just count six hours ahead. Right, right, right. right. I just uh, yeah, and then you just have to remember it's a day difference. Mm-hmm. Um, but so. I lose a day on the way back, in that I leave on the sixteenth and I come, I land on the seventeenth. Never exists for you. Seventeenth will never exist wow. for me, except in the form of action movies. Which, oh, of course, yeah. What's your favorite, what's your go-to airplane movie? Or what's been a good one so far? I mean, I just, I love all action movies on airplanes. It's That's when I watch, I, and I know they're not really designed to be viewed on a screen that's yeah, it's like 10 the inches across. Of the kind of movie you'd think you'd watch. On but I, it is, what I, I definitely watch most, I don't really go to the cinema to go and see an action movie. I can't be bothered mm-hmm. with it. So I, but I will watch like the latest Marvel or whatever that, that is when I'm right, on a plane. Right. I'm like, I'm not going to, I can't be asked to sit through it in, a, in the theater, but if I want to kill two hours of not having to, and also like on a long haul flight, you're sort of dozing off and you're, you're going in and out of consciousness. So the last thing you really want to do is something with a deep plot artistic heavy. plot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So much better to have something where like, ah, they, they does some running and then some shooting and then, she drives a car into a thing, and then he just... Like, well, it's, it's, you know, it's a romance novel structure. You know that everything's going to turn out all right. You know who right. the bad guys are. You know how the, who the good guys are. You know who the good guys who are going to turn into the bad guys are. Like, mm. you just... You know the beats of it. You know the rhythms of it. It's really, really comforting. And I'm very... Um, I, I didn't watch a lot of TV growing up, so I just find... I get really affected by movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and after... 
like genuinely the first flight I took after my mum died, I thought I won't even watch violent movies. I'll just watch Disney movies because that'll be like the least. Every Disney movie, oh, that's the, worst. the parents the die in the worst. first right. five minutes. Yeah. I was just a wreck. It was the worst <laughs> yeah, decision. Was yeah. I went straight back to Taken, Jason Statham. Just yeah, I was sorry, gonna say, cause, cause it has, and Taken. It has zero stakes there because even when people do die in an action movie, it's kind of like ah, Literally, that's a, yeah. there was there was no character depth to them. That was just that's like they're on they're like. I don't know. You can assume that they're bad guys. Yeah. Um, although one thing that really bothers me is disaster movies where just sort of thousands of people get swept away in CGI and they're never given any... Because they can't. How, how can you have the movie <laughs> explore all those have the emo- Yeah, but yeah. I don't like it as, as a tool. Yeah, yeah. I can't believe they keep making those. I got to saw Billboard for one of these new natural disaster movies. I didn't think they were doing well recently. Like San Andreas, did anybody see that? Yes, I saw it. It's got oh, okay. <laughs> on the plane. It's got the rock. <laughs> it's got the rock. I mean, what more could you want? He, it is truly. I mean, as an action movies go, he, it's it's truly ridiculous. Like he's driving a speedboat towards a tsunami, and oh, then uh, then a, the tsunami picks up a very big cargo carrier boat, and you think, oh, is he gonna? Is he gonna steer around the cargo carrier boat, and then the Boxes start falling off the cargo carrier boat, and he has to steer around. That's great. How did he end up in the position of being downwind? If the I'm assuming the earthquake Shh. happens. Okay, okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, like, is he on the western this side is the of other the Pacific? Reason. Why would there be San Andreas? It's here. He's here. Why would okay, this is yeah. the other reason why you have to watch it on an airplane because you're much stupider <laughs> okay, yeah. at altitude. <laughs> Well, that's we've talked about. Like, do you feel like you also get more emotional on airplanes? Like, do sad movies affect you more than on on the ground? Because I think because that, that is a documented phenomenon. Yes, I'm always actually- I'm always a wuss, but yes, of course. And I think it's partly because you're just so grateful that something's entertaining you. <laughs> <laughs> you don't think it's like an oxygen thing or something? Like, there's it's some actual- I don't know that's- pressure on your eye ducts or something. But I think that's probably a good analysis. I think it is just like the being on a plane is so tedious that you're just it, it's like the crying tears of joy thanking well, the movie well for like, I think it's like in a really a, a, the tiniest sound ring like the t- tiniest bell would ring really loud in a silent room mm-hmm. yeah so, so all of your emotions rush into the vacu- if, vacuum okay. if you're in the most emotionless like the most emotionally quiet emotionally dead just yeah. zone which is a long haul flight crammed in amongst 150 oh, yeah. other people just stuck in, stuck next to each other. Well, you've yeah. got your and not able to talk. of like investing your emotions into the movie you're watching yeah. or experiencing where you are now. Like, you just don't want to be yeah. there physically yeah. Or, or mentally. Yeah. So, why not just ex- escape into this? I almost said escape, <laughs> like, a, like a low oxygen adult uh, airplane traveler. Um, yeah, you want to escape into this crying world I guess I just, just a, an emotive world a yeah. world where you can finally feel something other than the buzzing drone of the rotary right. engines going you know do you have some good noise cancelling headphones though I do but I can't sleep in them oh because I have to kind of put my I'm not a front face sleeper or a back head sleeper I'm kind of a side oh, okay side I have to squish my ear I'm, to sleep yep there's no winning so the Nobel Prize Committee said their finding has vast implications <laughs> for our health and well-being yeah, that's right body clocks yeah uh, a clock ticks in nearly every cell of the human body, as well as in plants, animals, and fungi. This is something we discussed, and there's actually a new book that's just... Dr. Matt Walker 
who we recorded a live episode with at San Francisco Sketchfest about mm-hmm. three or four years ago, and it's great. I'd recommend you go back and check that out. But also, Matt Walker's just published a whole book about the science of sleep. He's a sleep sci- He's a psychologist who exp- who's an expert in sleep and the science of sleep mm-hmm. at, um, at Berkeley. I think. I think, or University of San Francisco. He's somewhere. He's one of the Bay Area universities, yeah. um, and he was a fantastic guest. And he talked all about not just how important sleep is, but also how fundamental it must be because it exists in every organism like even bacteria he said have a phase of the day where their activity is less active is less yeah. than it is that so it's by, this, by the way listeners i'm curious how many of you are also stifling a yawn as i am just thinking just because we're talking about sleep yeah i really am fighting to hold it back right now interesting ah, not on the spectrum <laughs> not on the spectrum oh good okay yeah huh. well that is a double surprise <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know how true that is, but uh, someone once told me that that's a test they do on kids. And if you're not, if, it's if, not you, if you yawn, it's contagious. If you don't yawn in a contagious way. Um, um, sorry, you were saying. Yeah, sorry. But yeah, Matt Walker was talking about. Well, it, it, sleep is incredibly must be incredibly important to life because firstly, it exists in all life, and secondly, when you think about it, it's the worst idea from an evolutionary point of view it does like everything about it seems to be wrong a period of the day a substantial period of the day in which organisms and humans and other animals or whatever are more vulnerable to attack mm-hmm. unable to find food or water or shelter or a reproductive mate so like everything that drives survival is slow down or stopped entirely during the sleep process susceptible to penises uncorkscrewed or corkscrewed exactly so it's like every, every well that would actually improve evolution but um okay. but everything yeah everything you think of during so f- for it to have survived all of evolution and to exist everywhere it must be incredibly fundamentally important and yet we don't understand it that well but we do a bit better thanks to the work of these three scientists I mean does that mean that that if every cell in every sort of animal and plant and so on and so forth mushrooms do mushrooms get jet lag is my point <laughs> I think they do get they, there are things that yeah I, I believe there are studies on things like fungi and, and on plants that where they can be negatively affected by taking them into different time zones and things like that. I'm not sure of the full details of that, but I know they have done some studies. I wonder if that's why birds go crazy during during eclipse because it's, like, it's almost like a form of jet lag. Because well, they, they certainly think night is coming too early, so they're like, it would oh, wait, certainly have to yeah affect them in some way. Because yeah, it must be. So well, they used to do that thing in Rome with ortolans, which are little fat birds that they used to eat, um, very small fat mm-hmm. birds, uh, and they want ate them they cultivated them and the point was that they were not very uh, fleshy to eat mm-hmm. but they were delicious apparently i don't dispute this i don't i've never eaten a tiny fat bird i think it would make me feel quite upset uh, but the re- they realized that they only ate at sunrise mm-hmm. and so they would put them in a, a room and every hour or so they'd pass oh. a candle over the uh, they'd artificially illuminate right. them yeah. and then feed them and then they would get very <laughs> fat uh, oh wow! Okay, yeah, that makes sense. The sunrise was the cue for them to eat. So, like, ah, oh, it's another day. All right, could turn them into little pudding balls. So, our mood, hormone levels, body temperature, and metabolism all fluctuate in a daily rhythm, and even things like our risk of heart attacks soar every morning as our body gets the engine running to start a new day. The body clock so precisely controls our body to match day and night that disrupting it can have profound implications. Oh, no. (laughs) So the ghastly experience of jet lag is caused by the body being out of sync with the world around it. In the short term, body clock disruption affects memory formation, 
But in the long term, and this won't be affected because this is just one-off jet lag is a sort of not continuous thing. But in the long term, it increases the risk of diseases, including type 2 diabetes, cancer, and heart disease. If we screw that system up, uh, we have a big impact on our metabolism, said Professor Russell Foster, who's a body clock scientist at Oxford. And he was delighted, apparently, that US TRIO had won, saying they deserve the prize for being the first to explain how the system worked. They've shown us how molecular clocks are built across all the animal kingdom. So their breakthrough initially was on fruit flies, but their findings explain how molecular feedback loops keep time in all animals. They isolated... Jeffrey Hall and Michael Rosbash, as two of the three, isolated a section of DNA called the period gene, which had been implicated in the circadian rhythm. It contains instructions for making a protein called PER. And also in grumpiness. Mm. It does. Uh, a protein called... Come on, come on. <laughs> it makes a protein called PER, and as levels of PER increase, it turns off its own genetic instructions. As a result... Levels of the PER protein oscillate over a 24-hour cycle, rising during the night and falling during the day. Then Michael Young discovered a gene called timeless and another one called double time, which both affect the stability of PER. If PER is more stable, then the clock ticks more slowly. If it's less stable, then it runs too fast. The stability of PER is one reason some of us are morning larks and some are night owls. Together, which one's the good one? I don't know. It doesn't to say. Be. I feel like you find articles that say either one is, and that's what people are always posting on Facebook is whatever, like, tells them that, guess what? Night owls are geniuses. <laughs> Y'all don't yeah. understand. Every, they all tell you, uh, yeah. like, if you, if you do this, then you're certainly yeah. one of the smartest if, if people. you're at, an introvert, uh, fuck you. why, you're an introvert. Why are we so super incapable of believing in, like, different but equal? Right. Yeah. I, I, as, as someone with a twin brother, I find that quite an easy oh. concept to grasp. Yeah. But... Well, I mean, is a twin, is a fraternal twin any more genetically similar than just regular old siblings? No, you're just siblings. Just the same age. Yeah. You're just siblings, but you do. You have very Everything cultural is the same, though. Right, you grew up. Right. You grew up at exactly the same time in the same environment. Right. Did you guys? Because uh, there's arguments like to siblings who are non-twin siblings. There's always going to be the difference of like this one's older than the other right, one, or this right. one. This one existed in your parents' lives before the other one, and you right, you know. Sort of yeah. You, so. Did you guys get dressed up at all similarly because you were... My uh, Jewish granny, who was a very strong personality, used to do that. Oh. She would dress us exactly the same, even though we were never identical. Um, right. <laughs> Henry, my brother, was always a, about a, half a foot taller than me, which grew to more than that. Right. Um, so together, between these two different, the two different groups, uh, they'd uncover the workings of the molecular clock inside the fly cells. Dr. Michael Hastings, who researches circadian timing at the MRC Laboratory of Molecular Biology, told the BBC, Before this work in fruit flies, we really didn't have any ideas of the genetic mechanism. Body clocks were viewed as a black box on a par with astrology. He said the award was a fantastic decision. And when we encountered the body clock, when we experienced... Was that a dig at astrology? (laughs) It was. That's exactly what that was. We encountered the body clock, he said, when we experienced jet lag and we appreciate it's debilitating for a short time. But the real public health issue is rotational shift work. It's a constant state of jet lag. So, uh, good work, guys. Congrats there we go. On the Nobel Prize. Don't spend it all in one place. What's the cash part of it again? Do you remember? You share 800 and th- you, sh- you share 9 million kroners, which is around... Hang on, this, this is a BBC article, so it's done it in pounds. But it's around £831,000, which is ju- at the current a, rate just over a million dollars. Okay. 
nice. probably a mil- million, million and a half dollars. So you want to work in small teams as your basic. <laughs> well, I think yeah. the Nobel Prize can be shared by at most three people in I mean, each category. It, like it was better in the olden days where you could just have really smart women and not credit them. Uh, yeah, that's the secret. Yep. There was a, there was a thread not super long ago um, about men thanking their wives in academic pieces mm-hmm. and just describing the wives at the work the, the work that the wives had done, which was like you know the actual work. Yeah, you know, many thanks to my wife who patiently transcribed this book. 14 times from hastily scribbled napkin notes and did all my research and it just, it's, it's like, just brutal. And theory this was. Yeah, yeah. But who first gave me the idea, <laughs> who first prompted me to conjure up this notion. Yeah, no, genuinely, like that level of like, this woman did so much work and she's not even getting named except as my wife. Although, In a Borat accent. At the same time as bringing up our three great children and like just, oh man, it's, it's horrifying. Although it was a woman... Marie Curie, who's the only person to have won two Nobel Prizes in two different scientific fields. I mean, that's Isn't true. There, I thought there was one. I think there's been there's been people who've won two Nobel Prizes in the same field, and there's been people who've won two where one of them was peace and one of them was science. Oh, okay, but okay. Uh, she got, I think, physics and chemistry. Mm. That's pretty good. Nice work. Tick tick. Yeah. Did uh, what was her husband's name again? Pierre. Pierre. Did he get any? He got. I think he got one Nobel one. Prize. And it wasn't related to her work. I think no. I think they shared. I'm, I'll have to look this up now. But I believe they did work together. On yeah, I think they they did shared. They both, get, they both died of radiation poisoning. I'm assuming. Uh, I probably. don't know what he. No, again, it's probably going to be oh, like no, she died because she did all the work. One of them, I think, one, one of them got <laughs> run over died by of lazing on a lounge. I no. think like someone who was drunk on a horse ran over one of them or something. Does that sound right? Yeah. What did he die? I, Hang I, on. I remember there's something. Yeah, interesting. That's, he, yeah, that's exactly what it was. He died in a street accident, crossing. Yeah, he was crossing the road, slipped and fell under a heavy horse-drawn cart. Was the horse drunk or the person driving the cart? Uh, (laughs) Can horses get drunk? uh, Statements made by his father and lab assistant imply that his characteristic absent-minded preoccupation with his thoughts contributed to his death. Um, he was texting while crossing the road. He just road. had like a stack of books that were all the way like in front of his face. You couldn't see <laughs> yeah. around. His glasses fell off. He was trying to juggle the books. And then, oh. It does say both the Curies experienced radiation burns, both accidentally and voluntarily, Jesus, and were exposed to extensive doses of radiation while conducting their research. Even their clothing recorded measurable le- levels of radioactivity. Had Pierre Curie not been killed as he was, it's likely he would have eventually died of the effects of radiation as his wife did um and also their daughter irene and her husband frederick charliot i didn't realize their entire the entire family basically gave themselves radiation poisoning while revolutionizing science and also i think there is like marie curie's notes even have to be like her lab notes which are in a museum they have to still be stored in a lead box and be studied very carefully using uranium as a paperweight yeah it was radio it was like yeah they had radium. radium and all sorts of they're just doing shots of mercury after work every day. <laughs> yeah. Like, What's, it's fun. It's, you got to figure it out somehow. Yeah. So he won the physics Nobel Prize, and I think that was shared with Marie. Okay. He was only 46? God, yeah. Pierre. But I guess, you know, if I had so to pick how to go... So many more years of handling dangerous substances. I'd rather be run off of a horse cart probably than die of radiation poisoning. I'm assuming the latter is not as quick as getting your skull crushed under the wheel of a horse cart. Uh, yeah. that he did. Yeah. I hope you're never presented with that as a choice. Uh, listen, if I'm like, let's say I'm like 90, I'll take that choice. So, yeah. Um, the other Nobel Prize is for physics, 
And this one's pretty cool from our point of view because we've done three episodes about this now and we've had people involved in the project as guests on the show. It's LIGO. Congrats, the LIGO. LIGO Gravity Wave project. So it's shared between uh, Ray Weiss, who takes half the prize, and then um, Kip Thorne and Barry Barish share the other half. And yeah, for their detection of gravitational waves, we don't have. To, we've done. Um, we've, yeah, we've covered. We've this. covered this very extensively. I'll, I'll give you a quick recap. But if you want a full, far more detailed and far more accurate version, the episodes with Jan Eleven and Larry Price and Jamie Rollins. Um, Jana is a gravitational wave expert. She's a theoretical physicist who's an expert in black holes. And then uh, the other two actually worked on the like on the Lego project as physicists under some of these scientists who've now who are now Nobel laureates. Also, yeah, by the way, like, I got to do Star Talk kind of... with, with Ray Weiss about a year oh, ago, nice. so I've also podcasted with a Nobel Prize winner now. Pretty sweet. Well, do they have any like footnotes in the Nobel Prize that have like that list the other project team members and things? Like, I don't, can I'm we sure... say our guests are Nobel adjacent now? They're definitely Nobel adjacent, yeah. and he they did get a shout-out specifically from... Yeah, hang on, let me find the exact quotation... But while you're doing that, uh, we actually got another email in about gravitational waves because I guess they detected another. Yes. Yeah, Justin Broad emailed in a story that uh, for the fourth time, gravitational waves have been detected by observatories on either side of the world. So nice work, guys. Are there still any skeptics? Because then a few months ago, we'd heard stories about how people thought these still could be chance well, noise. I mean, are there know? still well, no, I think, Of course there are still skeptics. But no, like, but I, th- I think the work, too? the most exciting thing about the the discovery the most recent one, which is I think the fourth time it's been detected by LIGO, yeah. but it was simultaneously detected by another detector on the other side of the world from a different project, which... Um, oh, I thought... Okay, I thought these were always from the two... Because there's two LIGO detectors on on this continent, right? Yeah, the LIGO Virgo thing? I'm going to be wrong I about like this. I the phrase LIGO detector. Yeah, yeah. so the li- LIGO... It's redundant. It already has yeah, built into its name that it's... LIGO stands for, what is it, light... Laser interferometer? Laser... observatory? Um, let me find exactly what it is. Um, yeah, laser is definitely the first word, because I remember us talking at the time about how it's... Uh, uh, and Virgo is the other an project. An acronym that includes another acronym. It's an acronym oh, that includes... Acronym, it's a nested yeah. acronym. Which is... Uh, Always fun. Russian babushka doll right, of acronyms. Right. Matryoshka dolls. Uh, the same thing came up the other day. Someone was like, babushka, right? And uh, I think that's like a common gra- usage, grandma mate. or something. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. Say it again, sorry. It laser is. Laser Interferometer? The Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. Nice. And he did say, which of them was it? Uh, Ray, Ray White, Rayner Weiss said... The discovery was the work of about a thousand people. It's a dedicated effort that's been going on for, I hate to tell you, it's as long as 40 years of people thinking about this, trying to make a detection, and sometimes failing in the early days and slowly but surely getting the technology together. It's very exciting that it worked out in the end. So he is, yeah, he's very much crediting the thousand-odd people of whom two of our past podcast guests yeah, were yeah. definitely uh, included. Um, so this is something that was... Predicted by Einstein's general relativity, but thought for the longest time, certainly in the time of Einstein, that it would be impossible to detect it because it's so faint. But essentially, everything... Einstein posited that gravity is effectively um, a, 
a thing that propagates mass, through space-time. Well, so. mass curves space-time. Like, so it's, it, the way people often think of it is the equivalent, if, if we lived in a 2D world, it would be the, the equivalent of a heavy thing sitting in a rubber sheet. Mm. So if you put like a heavy ball, like a bowling ball in the middle of a rubber sheet, and then... That's so it's someone's sink, fetish. Right? Mm. Totally is. And then it sinks, sinks a little bit, and you see that sort of curvature that it causes. And oh, then if yeah. you try and roll like a marble along that sheet... Again, relying on gravity for your it, model of gravity. It'll cur- <laughs> Yeah, it'll curve around. So everything causes these ripples in space-time, and when something huge happens, like a, one black hole collides into another black hole, it causes this wave of the actual fabric of time to ripple out, the ap- fabric of space-time to ripple out through the universe. So there's this actual squashing and stretching of the fabric of space-time itself that's happening. In the same way that... that passes through you actually compressing yeah, and pass- expanding you. Exactly. In the, kind of, sort of, in the same way that a sound wave is the compression and then expansion of air molecules. Like, it just, it sort of... But me- that's a measurable thing in three dimensions. And yes. This is like an, and uh, instead, this is like... Being so the wobbled act- in a different dimension than the... Th- yeah, yeah. yeah, so the way this works, which is sort of in- which is ingenious, is light is a constant, like the speed of light is a constant, so it simultaneously sends a beam of light down two incredibly long, like kilometers long arms that are at right angles to each other. Mm-hmm. So it goes... So this be- beam of light is split into two... One goes off one way, one goes off the other way at right angles to each other, and then they bounce off the end, this mirror at the end, and then they come back and they meet. And if there's been no ripple in space-time, they'll meet at exactly the same moment. Or they but, can tune it until the waves line up exactly. in a normal case, so they're just it, perfectly... And then there's a mirror there that only lets light through. Exactly. So what, so what oh, happens man, is... You do not want to be the person who accidentally walks through the beam. Well, this is the thing. Like, so it's, it's so ludicrously sensitive. And we'll listen back to the episode for some of the stats on exactly how sensitive it is. But it is ridic- like a sort of an earthquake on the other side of the world can affect... We're talking about differences of like fractions of an atom difference that we're talking about like fractions of fractions of, like of an atom over the course of yeah it it's absurdly sensitive and that's why previous incarnations of this project found nothing because it just wasn't sensitive enough so this is decades long in improving and refining right, and right. increasing and reimagining and fine-tuning and the most r- l- Dis- disregarding every time someone sneezed. Yeah, so well, at least there's, there's two of them. So like, literally, a sneeze could affect it, but then the one over in uh, this wherever that is in like Georgia wouldn't be affected. Just the one in Washington would. But yeah, I don't. So I don't know the, how they compare the data that they're getting on the two things. They do a hell of a lot of very very clever stuff to get away. From the, and also, I think it's built into the ground and it's away from as much as possible. But it's just anyway, it's yeah. it's designed to be as insulated as possible from anything like that. But again, it. Yeah, a sneeze would register. You could talk about the tiny, like a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of an atom, and they managed to detect this yeah, thing. And the signal exactly matched two black holes colliding. What they'd expect from the mathematical models of that—that's amazing. Um, so there you go. Congratulations, to all of those people. Kip Thorne, by the way, people who are pop culture fans would know as the guy who had the idea for Interstellar. Were we talking about this on the air or off the air now? I can't Hopefully, remember. Today we were off the air, but I think we have on the show before. We've, we've, t- we've registered our complaints about the parts of that movie that are less science-y, or at least I have, but in general it's a cool yeah. movie. 
I doubt Kip Thorne had the theory about love being the universal constant or whatever. The- no, that was the first. That he actually, he's a double <laughs> Nobel laureate now. He's, he has the love. He won the Nobel Prize for love. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm up for the Nobel Prize for hugs for I next like year. I like the bit where he's sort of trapped in the Venetian blinds. I forgot. Oh, oh. I thought he was trapped behind a bookshelf. Was he yeah, it's, also- but it's all, you know, right, right. Venetian he's blindsy. Only allowed to move. <sighs> I forgot what the what was the love theory that that's how he I don't know. No, love allowed him to locate the moment in time, I think, to oh, locate okay. the bookshelf in all of the infinite Venetian blinds that represented uh, time space. And uh, then he could make the watch tick or something. All I can remember is that and then the thing where the plane's getting like kind of pulled apart the plane. The ship is going through a black hole or through a wormhole or something. And that was a pretty cool scene. And then some scientists were saying they thought that was actually like relatively accurate to what would be going on as you were... I'm, like, I'm not sure you could ever really express what would be... Remember that scene? It was being like stretched apart. And then, well, certainly not in a movie because the whole light thing would be an right. issue. And the dimensions. Um, and then also being mad when that dude was like, yeah, you guys go down to that, that planet, check it out, I'll be up here. Knowing that that means like he'll be alone for years. Because an hour down there will be like a year. And he just didn't even give it a second thought. Like, you guys wouldn't have like a little, let's talk for an hour. Let's hug. I'm never going to see a person for years or maybe the rest of my life if you happen to that take an extra hour. Like big beef with most science space movies where you just get people up, up in space who are clearly mentally unstable. Like... <laughs> Have you not done any tests right. at all? This would be the first thing you would test for. Is like everybody would have to be the most reasonable, level-headed. Yeah, unless you're pulling to together with. the kind of emergency team in response to all people who've ever been trained as astronauts having been killed by a mysterious astronaut virus. But all the coal miners or whatever Armageddon had uh, are still around. <laughs> yeah, what, what, not coal miners. What were they? Dig, they were but, oil drillers. Yeah, I can't like, remember. But well, it's often, again, you know, I don't academics think academics or whatever, right, as though never. academics could ever. Anyway, yeah, it, it again pointed out many times that the logic of so it was quicker to train. Oh right, right. Yeah, why would like it? oil drillers to be astronauts <laughs> than, than it was train astronauts to do a little drilling. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I don't know. But they work as a team, and they yeah, right, right. <laughs> it's complicated machinery. So it's all about oh, the chemistry, man. Mm-hmm. Also, if you want to know more about the quest and the and how. What what a limb they were going out on even doing this project in the first place because this project right? yeah the Armageddon yeah. project and also the LIGO project which was okay. again forty years in the making from first coming up with the idea to it ending up happening Jan Eleven friend of the show our favorite theoretical physicist wrote the like a book that's exactly that um, so we're talking all the history the of the difficulty black, of the black hole blues and other songs from outer space is Jan Eleven's new book and you know her you love her she's great. Look, so this, look, this project is... Sorry, go ahead. I just want to know whether they, they should just dangle like a, a bit of gold in front of each of these astronauts who are going up to do these, these Saving <laughs> the World missions. I'm sorry, crazy? I'm still on this track here. No, crazy? I think it's right that we because come back always, to this and solve this problem. There's always the one who's like, Mwahaha, you know, like just there for, you know, to beef up his resume or to, you know, get the money out of it or he's secretly yeah. betraying them because of the money. Like just... Just seriously, just show someone a hundred bucks, and if their pupils dilate, kick him out of the program. Yeah. Like, Sir, know. it's McMullen. Uh, we did the gold test, and he <laughs> he, he cackled. The, he <laughs> <the gold. laughs> it's exactly. Yeah. He's got cold fever. Just have 
freaking out. He's trying to tell us that it was uh, an excited laugh rather than an evil laugh. (laughs) But it definitely hit the evilometer. Definitely, uh, he was definitely coveting. (laughs) It registered on the on the gravitational (laughs) pull (laughs) of the Earth. How about a story about how grass-fed beef is bad for the planet and causes climate change? Surely grass-fed beef is good. (laughs) Prince Charles himself said so. Nope, there's a cowspiracy. Uh, Prince, <laughs> Prince Charles is wrong to support grass-fed beef. What, idea- you, what you had to say there, Alice? Career-wise, Prince Charles has been right about quite a lot of things, He's including, be- weirdly enough, the thing that everyone said he was a mad hippie about, which was that plants could hear music. That that one is. I think there is some is evidence. A story? Yeah, that a like thing? he was. He was one of those very very early like local sourcing blah 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 people. Oh. And but he, was, he, ha- he was, you know, he was passed off as a, you know, limp-wristed wussy man uh-huh. back in the day. Right. And now, now a lot of a lot of the way that we do things has been vindicated. Less enlightened day when such a thing could be said publicly in a national newspaper. E- exactly. <laughs> such a slur. Um, although he has also promoted a lot of bullshit pseudoscience as well. Oh, like he's yeah, been absolutely. like a lot of alternative medicine. that's nonsense. I think. I think homeopathy. He's big on that, oh, as previously he would discussed. Be. He would be. That's because he believes that a drop of royal blood makes him better than anyone by well, that's hundred true. times. And that is true. If we could access his blood, then we mm-hmm. we too would be fantastically healthy and well and smart. Hey, so, so yeah, so you yeah, were saying, Andy, he's wrong. He's wrong. Uh, the idea that beef from cows raised on bucolic pastures is good for the environment and that we can therefore eat as much meat as we want doesn't add up. New calculations suggest cattle pastures contribute to climate change. Sadly, though, it would be nice if the pro-grazers were right. They aren't says lead author Tara Garnett of the University of Oxford's Food Climate Research Network. Oh, well, back to factory farming, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Truth is, we cannot eat as much meat as we like and save the planet. Many meat eaters have long felt guilty that the beef steaks they love are bringing environmental disaster. A key problem is that microorganisms in the gut of cattle emit millions of tons of methane every year. A typical cow releases 100 kilograms of methane a year, and the world has about a billion of them. Since methane is a greenhouse gas, that exacerbates global warming. It, it doesn't say this in this article, but I seem to remember that it's actually, not only is it a greenhouse gas, but actually it's many like it times worse as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. Yeah, I think I've heard that. I think I heard that literally from the movie Cowspiracy, which we've discussed before. Right. <laughs> but it's also from science. Sure. You know, you can um, cut a hole in the side of a, a cow and reach into its stomach and get the good gut flora and put it into another sick cow and the uh, sick cow will get better and they just walk around with holes in their sides for a while. I it thought, doesn't seem to bother them that much. I've heard about this hole in the stomach thing, but I didn't know they did that with it. I thought it was just like exploratory early on when they didn't know about how like digestion worked and shit. That no, they, no, no. You it. can. It's like it's like a, a very rudimentary form of, of things like the fecal, fecal transplant. Transplant, yeah. Plan. Hmm. Hmm. Which we have talked about on the show a surprising oh, amount of time. It's come up a lot. And it actually came up. Have you seen Tignataro's show on Mississippi? Well, I think no, I haven't. No matter how much data and science and so on and so forth are behind it, no matter how sterile they do it, no matter how much they like medicalize it, you cannot get the image of two people butt to butt pooing into Pooping each other into, out of, yeah, each, out yeah. of your head. You just cannot get. And also, it can't be sterile by, the, by its very nature. It could be. You, people can be tested to make sure they're in as good a health as possible mm. but by its very nature it can't be sterile because it's the life bacteria the you want is the thing that is yeah, it's not. yeah but sterilizing I mean, it would mean it doesn't matter that... how many pairs of gloves you wear I think yeah. <laughs> yeah. how much you dress it up you're still pooping into someone's butt when it comes down to it um, 
So but anyway, okay. Um, Although speaking of which, as a sideline, one of my favorite things in the world is like ladies' m- makeup and skincare and the like, the medicalization of that. How so? Like the lab coat and the blue. Oh right, as if it's like a sterile procedure. Yeah. Like I saw a, a a lab coat blue kind of marketing thing on on a face mask that was made out of snail slime. Which <laughs> is just, just uh, yeah, it's not. Even even wearing even wearing like uh, masks and gl- like things for childbirth is crazy. That's not a sterile procedure. You're not breaking a barrier that's sterile. Like it just yeah. makes people think it's feel like it's more professional. You don't need that stuff. It's no. not like you're performing the whole surgery. Thing is, sorry, yeah, I interrupted yeah. there, but it well, is one of my favorites. There is also thing. statistics on wet the sort of medicalization of childbirth when childbirth was taken out of the hands of midwives and put given to doctors. Right. Right. And they sort of had to create more medically things to be yeah, doing to justify it being like, ritual. oh, this is a doctor thing now. Rather than- yeah. So and things it- like lying flat on your back in a bed, which is not actually... Not what you should be doing, right? Yeah. You should be squatting, I And, guess, there, or- and yeah. there is also, yeah, and a lot of the, uh, the procedures... There, essentially, the, the best way, the healthiest way to give birth is with a midwife, but also with the presence and potential access to more, to more to a doctor and more doctors yeah, potentially obviously if something goes wrong you want but to yeah. yeah so you're like too far the other way is also bad where you got like ah doctors no you want doctors to be at least close and there and usefully right. there but for the main part of it for the most part you just need in a, general yeah a reiki healer and someone that's who what you need man. that's what you need rolfing who can like you walk need on your back so you just scope up, yeah. yeah you know if you do it right it shouldn't hurt at all Shouldn't have. You should have an orgasm. Yeah, she's like, like, this is no, it's just, just, just push down. It's just, yeah. like, fine. Something. I mean, that's the thing about the having giving birth in a bath thing. That's always. I mean, baths are disgusting enough already. Yeah, if you think about them too much. It's sort of like pooing in a bath. I mean, there's a lot of which stuff is that, fun. That's right, fun. I guess it probably. There's a lot is. of stuff that comes out other than baby when you're giving. Oh yeah, birth. and that's and if you're not in water, you can including clean food. that away yeah so i didn't think about that part of it there's definitely going to be poo in that bath water yeah and then you're just in a bath of of your poo yeah you, just, yeah. The, you know the inside that. outside barrier has been more degraded even this while sorry feeding, yes, okay, the beasts. Yeah. feeding cows destroys forests. i had an idea for a joke and i've forgotten it i really yeah i've shut so, down Keep sorry <laughs> did i how did we get down the, how did cows we lead into we don't need to know yeah. okay, listeners if you want to know you can rewind this podcast however meanwhile feeding these cows destroys forests by taking land for pasture or to grow feed and this deforestation also contributes to greenhouse gas emissions oh I remember what I'll tell you later oh. <laughs> no no keep going but a counter view has gained currency first popularized by Zimbabwean ecologist and livestock farmer Alan Sever- uh, Savory <laughs> and Supported by organic farmers like Prince Charles, it argues. I didn't know that he gets the title farmer. He actually is a farmer. Well, he does have a farm. Okay. Yeah, he has farmland. I don't think he's up at five in the morning tending the fields and doing the harvest himself. Can you but... imagine swiping through farmers only? And then, like, <laughs> is that the Prince of? Yeah, pretty sure that's okay. <laughs> uh, I guess I guess that's how it all started back in the nineties. Prince mm. farmer homopath. Adulterer, what more do you want? <laughs> so this this new movement argues that grazing cattle on pastures is actually good for the climate. The idea is that plants on pastures capture carbon from the air, especially when fertilized by manure, and they should also reduce our need for food crops grown on land that releases carbon when plowed. 
Confused by conflicting claims, Garnet and her colleagues calculated the flow of greenhouse gases into and out of pastures. She found that in some circumstances you can get carbon capture, but not always, and the effect is small. You cannot extrapolate from a nicely run Dorset farm to a global food strategy. At best, carbon capture only offsets 20 to 60% of greenhouse gas emissions from grazing, mostly the methane from cattle. And the carbon capture stops after a few decades. Uh, when the carbon-enriched soils reach equilibrium with the air. Meanwhile, the cattle continue to belch methane. Um, Belching is putting it politely. Yeah. The analysis is more comprehensive than past studies, says Tim Benton at the University of Leeds. It asks, if we are to eat meat, is there a better way to grow it? And the answer is, not really. Supporters of cattle grazing aren't giving up just yet, though. They say Some say cattle has simply replaced wild ruminants, which also release methane. But Garnet points out that many cattle, especially in the tropics, graze on former forest land. In places such as the Brazilian Amazon, clearing trees for cattle causes massive greenhouse gas emissions. At low densities of around one animal per hectare, carbon capture in soils could still exceed methane emissions, says Richard Young of the Sustainable Food Trust in Bristol, which supports cattle grazing. Mm -hmm. However, he concedes this is not true at higher densities. Garnet's conclusion is supported by a study published on the 29th of September which found that methane emissions from cattle are 11% larger than old meth- older methods would suggest, and thus is a bigger contributor to global warming. Benton says we need to reduce emissions from livestock, and that needs to come from dietary change. Or making the, that like lab-grown meat that never was part of an animal, which is super appetizing. Right? I, haven't, ever- I, I haven't tried it yet. There's the two different burgers now that you can buy somewhere in L.A., One's called the Impossible Burger, and I can't remember what the other one's called, and they're both... Like $100 a burger? No, they're they're down to... You can get them from... There's a restaurant around the corner from me that has them for 14 bucks for the burger, and you can buy them in the supermarket as well. 14 bucks for a burger that was never part of an animal? I don't think... It, I mean, there's, I it's think there's different vegan from la- meat substitutes yeah. and also lab-grown meat. This thing is not lab-grown meat. This is different. I think lab-grown meat is not currently in general on the yeah, market. Yeah, I think it would be so... This is something that uses plant protein but it's designed to fit juice it's yeah it's designed to very accurately mimic both the appearance and texture of real meat but not yeah again not the thing i was talking about which like actually developing muscle tissue in a lab without yeah there's basically is a clone it'll be a clone of a once existing cow that's just a cell culture that is right right right. it's pretty cool just a big slab of butt yeah Yeah, i i don't eat meat but i'd have no issues with that except for except for presumably it would come with the same health concerns that eating meat come with like eating meat has a higher gives you a high risk of certain cancers i bet that tends to be and heart disease more in the processed meats i always thought i think so but i think red meat particularly even good red meat does carry higher risks of Mm. things like bowel cancer Oh, I remember the thing I was going to say. Which what are you going to say? My favorite, probably, science experience. And I want to say this in a way that is not super controversial. But I was uh, in Sydney. I was approached by a representative of a major religion uh, saying science and this religion. And they gave me a pamphlet. It was a purple pamphlet. Mm-hmm. And in it, they had all the appearance of science, but none of actual science okay so it just had you know in the holy book it says this figure one picture of the thing it says in the holy book picture two 
picture of science that looks vaguely similar. Oh, that's kind of adorable. It so was, it's like, here is here is our theory and here is our evidence because we've drawn a picture of our theory. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it was... It was it's like, I don't think you can write out your thing again and then point to it to say that that's proof of itself. Right. And you can draw a picture of Noah in a lab coat and have that mean that... I just yeah. go, well, if Noah isn't real, then how come I drew a picture of him just now? <laughs> it's like one of the things was like the description of an unborn child at one stage of the fetal development was at like a, a chewed up piece of stuff. And they had a picture of a fetus next to a picture... Uh, <laughs> they had a picture of a fetus next to a picture of some chewing gum. <laughs> <laughs> but they had like particularly chosen some gum that was chewed sort of fetal like shape. Yeah. <laughs> it was just it was just beautifully meaningless. It just had all of the appearance of that's gr- science. But that's sort of what was it Richard Feynman who coined the phrase cargo cult science? I don't know whether he actually coined it or whether he just popularized it. I'm not sure. But that's what that expression means and used in this sense of pseudoscience. It comes from these island, certain island nations after the war ended when there used to be an American airbase there that would bring in supplies and food and all sorts of good stuff and then the Americans just cleared out after the war and left this group of relatively primitive like undeveloped culture who didn't know where this stuff was coming from so they made their own runway and built a control tower and like out of wood and stood there with like coconut microphones and that's amazing headsets and tried to summon the cargo to come back again to bring them more supplies and now i guess used as an expression to mean whenever anything when it when people are going through the motions of science without actually doing science like as many pseudoscientists many alternative health practitioners do like you, you go into the homeopaths office their clinic and they someone in a white coat asks you about your symptoms and they do a thing yeah and they they put machines on you that press buttons and things light up and then they give you a tablet and it's but it's no different to a kid with a medicine like my first medicine set like it's all just going it's all just coconut control towers and well yeah and also you tend to go to a doctor when you're feeling probably you've been feeling bad for a while and if you didn't go to a doctor you'd probably start to feel better after exactly but you so that's why these things survive but there's just this act of someone just going through all the actions of pretending to be, oh, well, sit down and what? tell me about your symptoms and I'm going to listen to various bits of your body now and I'm going to push bits with things. And I mean, that's what the duck said, right? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I was just, uh, I, I'm curious if there are actual videos of these cargo cults and what, like, how elaborate their things were. Because yeah, I guess one of the first ones was in uh, the Melanesian Islands and... Um, when the military abandoned the air bases and stopped dropping cargo, charismatic individuals developed cults uh, that promised to bestow their followers deliveries of food, arms, jeeps, etc. And yeah, they would mimic the day-to-day activities and dress styles of U.S. soldiers, such as performing parade ground drills with wooden or salvaged rifles, carved headphones from wood, and wore them while sitting in fabricated control towers. That's amazing. Yeah, there's got to be videos. This is from like 1945. I bet yeah, someone's... here is a cargo cult plane made of, like an airplane made of sticks and straws. Oh my god, that's amazing! That's, that's a great incredible. plane. It's a great plane. Yeah, it won't fly anywhere, but <laughs> it will yeah. bring you delicious food. So there we go. And apparently, they've risen in more than one place. Hey, Alice. Hey. 
Where can our listeners find out more about you and your work? Firstly, your podcast, right? Yes, I have a podcast called Tea with Alice, where I have tea with people and talk about difficult ideas, um, just because I think there's too many places in the world now where people are like, I think this, and then the other one goes, I think this, and then they go, grrr, and then leave. So this is the, my attempt to do an antidote to that. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E, um, <laughs> It's like the normal spelling of alliterative, but with one L instead of two L's. And oh my God, that's wow! You picked the hardest to describe. Shh. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I'm in the LA Podcast Festival this weekend. I'm doing a show, at, a spot at the Improv. I'm all over the place. Which um, show? You're doing that show. Your, your show at the LA Podcast Festival. No. Oh, okay. I'm just going to be there. Oh, are as you, you were last year, I, I did an episode of Tea with Alice from yes. about a year ago. We did it at, at the pool. We did, on the pool side of the LA. It's in a different location this year, the podcast festival. The Biltmore downtown. It is. We'll Story. be there as well. So if you are attending the LA Podcast Festival, come and say hello. Come and watch our show. And if you're not, but you know people who are, tell them to come and see us at 2 p.m. on the Saturday. And why not just leak one enticing thing that might get you guys uh, out of your chairs and over to the festival? Uh, Brooks Whelan, the original third host, is going to be one of our guests on Saturday. Is that okay? I'll edit yeah. this out if you don't want me to say it. But I No, like, I think that's not? great. And I'm very happy to have... Brooks Whelan of SNL and many other things since now. Mm-hmm. And the original third probably scientist is going to be rejoining us. Who I'm meeting with tomorrow to talk about. He has a podcast he's going to be starting up and I was going to show him some tech stuff. So excited to see what that's going to be. I mean, is that like talking to an ex about their new... Oh, no. It's what? like an ex we're totally fine with. Oh, right. yeah. Like, we're, we're happy. If anything, we're happy for him to have his own podcast <laughs> yeah, now. Yeah, you, yeah. you want him to find I someone better than you. what's best. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we had some good times. <laughs> Is this podcast our our baby that we have 100% custody of? Yeah, I think he, I think that's exactly what's happened. He, he ran has, off and left he's us. Twice a year, dad. He has twice a year visitation rights. Yeah, yeah. And that's why this podcast is never going to be quite right. I know. Oh, we, God. It's, <laughs> listeners can probably tell you. Yeah. You can find us at Probably Science. You can email us at probablyscience at gmail.com. You can also visit us at the Squarespace Powered probablyscience.com, where we also have the donation button that has been used for monthly donations by Matthew Arnold, Rosalie Simonich, Pandora Young, Stephen Edmonds, and Keith Stattenfield. Thank you very much, all of you, this week for your monthly donations coming through. You can also do one-off donations, and you can also spread the word. Tweet mm-hmm. about us. Facebook us. Write nice things about us on iTunes. Give us good ratings. Tell everyone to listen to us. That really helps us out. So do all those things. Find us individually at Matt Kirshen, at Andy T. Wood. Yes. Check out Alice's podcast and check out Alice in general as a comedian and as a tweeter. Yeah. And all those other things. As a muscular female, the the rock. Yeah, she's she's. Yeah, we should have said that at the beginning, but she. I've always thought of you as the female the rock, but I never wanted to say that. (laughs) Ah, shucks. Thank you, because you were worried I'd squash you with my massive guns. I am. I'm so jet lagged. Turn it off. (laughs) We'll see you this weekend at the podcast festival. Bye. Bye. Bye.